there because he has political alliances. So in verse 19, he's the one who tries to kill Jesus when Jesus is an infant. He's the reason why uh, Joseph is warned in a dream to run away to Egypt. And now at the end of Matthew chapter 2, he's dead. So that seems like that's really good news. Right? And so what happened is Herod, uh, when he died, and we talked about this last week, he put a bunch of his kids to death because he was a really messed up person. Right? So he killed at least two of his sons, had, had his wife put to death, had his brother-in-law put to death, had his father-in-law put to death, uh, had 46 other people put to death at different points at least. Uh, and then he also slaughtered all the infants in Bethlehem. So that's the reason why Joseph runs away with him. When he died, he, he, he had all of these children, and he would write and rewrite his will according to who he wanted to get his kingdom. And he kept changing it. And so actually the one who had all of the, the kingdom initially was this guy, Archelaus, who while Herod the Great was still alive, had his brother Aristobulus put to death. Really functional family. So if you're getting ready for Christmas stuff today, and you go, my family is, ugh. Like, there's, there are worse. You may not believe it. Okay, like, you might be like, mm, you don't know my family. Like, weird family. So Aristobulus, at this point, he's gone. Archelaus becomes king. In the first week that he is king, he has 3,000 Jewish people put to death. So he goes to Rome because he's getting pressure. He goes to Rome to try to preserve his kingdom. The Jewish people go to Rome to try to get him deposed of his kingdom. And what ends up happening is the Romans get involved again, and they split the kingdom of Israel into three parts. So Archelaus gets half of the kingdom. He gets Judea, Samaria, and uh, Idumea. So Judea and Samaria, those are names from the New Testament. You go, oh, I kind of know where that's at. Antipas gets Galilee and Perea. And again, you go, I've heard of Galilee, Perea. You don't have to really like this. Hey, forget that, okay? Different part. He gets a quarter of the kingdom, and then his brother Philip, the other son, gets another quarter of the kingdom. And if you go, okay, this family is still kind of messed up. Later on, when we talk about John the Baptist, remember that John the Baptist was imprisoned for speaking out against Herod Antipas because Herod stole his brother's wife, and John the Baptist called him out on it. That's why he ends up getting arrested, right? Really functional family. So the early New Testament period where we're talking about, the Herods are all over it, and then later on you get two Herod Agrippas, one that reigns for three years. He's the one that puts the apostle James to death in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, and then uh, in Herod Agrippa II is the one that Paul goes in front of with his sister Bernice before Paul gets sent to Rome as a prisoner, okay? Four Herods. So today, Herod the Great is dead, and, that's, and, and you're going to see why Joseph is afraid of Archelaus, this guy who is in, right off the bat killing people, continuing the terrorizing reign of his father, even though he only has half of the kingdom. So... When the angel appears to Joseph in verse 19 and tells him, go ahead and go back to the land of Israel, the person or the people seeking to destroy him are dead. He's talking about Herod. Joseph gets up, takes the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. And then this is where, verse 22, but when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea, I don't want to go there. So question before we keep reading the rest of that verse. Did Joseph disobey? 
God says, the angel says, take your wife and child, go back to the land of Israel. Joseph gets close and goes, Archelaus is king? I don't want to go there. Face value, if the rest of the verse wasn't there, you'd be like, I think Joseph messed up. He should have gone back with some confidence. Instead, what it says is, he hears that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there. Normally, we would say, fear, wrong response. But then it says, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to Galilee where Herod Antipas was the ruler. Goes into and, and, and withdraws to a place that is obscure, it is quiet, and nobody is looking for Jesus there. It's the first mention, Nazareth, this is the first mention in Matthew's gospel of Nazareth, even though in Luke's gospel, Luke makes it clear that both Mary and Joseph were from there. But Matthew's emphasis is on the fulfillment of Scripture. They're not at odds with each other. Matthew is just rounding out his theological point of his gospel. That is, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who fulfills the prophets and the Scriptures. That's why it is spoken by the prophets, or what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. There's no clear reference in the Old Testament to which prophet he's referencing, other than there's an expectation among the prophets that Matthew is familiar as he's relaying to a Jewish audience that the, 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 the Christ would be a Nazarene. Now, what's interesting about this is, on face value, you go, man, this poor family, they're getting jerked around by whoever's in political control. And yet, when you step into what Matthew is relaying to us, he is showing that God is using all of these moving parts in a dysfunctional family that is in control to accomplish the Word of God in Jesus, so that all of Scripture might be fulfilled. I, it, it, sometimes I, I think we wonder or we think that God will accomplish all of his promises in a really clean and easy way without having to meddle or use the lives of messy people. But the reality is, is like this is the amazing, like this, is, this should blow our minds a little bit about who God is. That God's plans are not thwarted by messed up people. And in fact, God uses messed up people to direct all things towards his purposes in revealing his son. Like he takes all of the messed up stuff in human history and he works it to this point of salvation in Jesus. And he, the whole time using families that are falling apart, and you're going, what are you, just do the right thing. And that ought to give us hope because if you, again, as you gather for Christmas Eve or Christmas lunch or Christmas dinner or gathering around the tree or whatever you might do, you might look at your family and go like, they're kind of a messy bunch. And the incredible thing is that God is really good and, and he specializes in using messy people. If perfect people were required to do God's purposes and to bring his, his, his will about, nothing's getting done, people. And yet God is not limited by the mess, which is incredible. You and I, like, we have probably at some point in our life, we have run into the brick wall of personality that will not budge and go, plan thwarted. Or the plan is going to like, and I, when I say this, I'm talking about our plans, right? Like, I'm, I have all of this stuff worked out and then run into a brick wall. That's not working. And my plan dies. And maybe you have plans. You go, I had plans. I think about the Tangled movie. I have a dream, right? Anyway, no. Anyway. And you have dreams. You go, that dream didn't work out. 
Dreams are limited. My plans didn't go as, as planned. And there's only one whose plans always come about the way he designed them to be. And the incredible thing is he will take all of your shattered plans, the ones that you had had all of your hope in, and he will repurpose them and use them in a way that you and I could never imagine. Let me ask you this question. How many of you, your life today is exactly what you thought it would be 20 years ago? You are exactly where you thought you would be 20 years ago. Your family is exactly where you thought they would be 20 years ago. This Christmas looks exactly like what you would have said it would have looked like on December 24, 2004. How many of you? That's really good. You guys gave up lying. At, at, oh, Micaiah, he's like, it's me. You got a few more years, buddy. A couple years ago, like this, this is all working to plan. Zach, you are parenting with no disappointment. Good job. Gold star. But what's incredible about this is that we, we think about Nazareth, and, and I want to just kind of key in on this, like, that God uses one of the most obscure places, and, and you go, how do you know it's an obscure place? I just want you to see just two, two spots uh, where Nazareth is kind of spoken about, or where Jesus' background is spoken of in Nazareth in ways that, you know, uh, it, it almost stood as an obstacle for people in Israel to see him as the Messiah. It, it, it started with the people from Nazareth. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 50 and verse 55, uh, he, is, he goes back to Nazareth as an adult, and he's teaching them in the synagogue, and they're astonished. And they say, where did he get this wisdom and these mighty works? Like, in other words, how, how, where did he come from? And then the very next thing they say is, isn't this just the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother Mary, and aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and are not all of his sisters with us? Where then did these men get these things? And they took offense at him. Why did they take offense at him? Because of where he was from. He was from among them, and they go, nah, that can't happen here. Then in John chapter 1, this is kind of funny. I wonder if they ever you know, brought this up later on. Uh, when he's calling his disciples to himself and he's calling them to follow him. In John chapter 1, verses 45 uh, and 46, um, he found, uh, first of all, he called a guy named Philip to follow him. And then it says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In other words, we have found the Messiah. And Nathanael's immediate gut response was, can anything good come from there? God chose to reveal His eternal Son in the flesh, come to save us in one of the most obscure places that was an obstacle for people to believe that He could possibly be who He was. Just a, just a carpenter's kid is what people saw Him as. Just the, the, the older brother of these four other guys. Just the older brother of these other gals. A place where nothing good or of redeeming value comes from. Which makes Philippians chapter 2 hit just a smidge harder. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul is encouraging a church later on down the road. And he's encouraging them to, to, uh, to have the same mind that is in Jesus. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. And then notice what he says here. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, and I should have put verse 7 on there, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So like Paul talks about having the same mind that is in Jesus, a mind of humility, but he appeals to Jesus taking on flesh and dwelling among us. And then you take this a step farther. Not only did he take on flesh and dwell among us, but he took on flesh and dwelt in one of the most obscure places that you could think of. When he took on flesh, he didn't raise up in a royal palace. He wasn't fed with a silver spoon. He wasn't treated with all of the delicacies that you could imagine. He grew up as the son of a carpenter in a place that no one wanted to be from. The God of the universe who created all things and through whom all things hold together took on flesh and dwelt in a backwater place of no reputation. It was a big enough step down just to take on flesh. To be any kind of person alongside of us, if he is God of the universe, is a huge demotion and step down from who he is. An emptying of himself. But when Paul is saying to, to have the same mindset, to humble yourself, and he appeals to Jesus' humanity, if you look at how Jesus, like where did Jesus come from, and what kind of humility and humiliation did he go through, not just in his life, but then on the cross, you go, Wow. That's a humble Savior. We, we draw on that a little bit because we say, well, he was laid in a manger, and that's just because the inn was full, and that's just what they had. And then after that, everything was great and grand, and he had all of the toys and all of the things. But that was his entire life, was laying aside his divine right to rule and to reign and taking on and emptying himself and taking on flesh and dwelling among us fully human. And what I think is kind of crazy about this, I started, let me just started tracking this. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, it says that we have a high priest in Jesus who is able to identify with us in all of our weaknesses because he's been tempted in all of the ways that we are, but without sin. And normally when I read that, and maybe when you read that, we think of the big sins. He's been tempted towards all of the big sins. He's been tempted to murder that person who cut off his donkey on the road. He'd been, he'd been tempted to take something that's not his. He'd been tempted to, to, to look at somebody with lust. He's been tempted to do this, or tempted to do this, tempted to do this. But I wonder, if he's tempted in every way like we are, and he's raised in an obscure backwater place, what about, can he identify with my anger or frustration over my place in life if I'm not happy with where I am? Can he identify with you in your longing for something more than what you have? To be more than the son or the daughter of this profession. To be more than this person. To be more than this random nobody from Nazareth. Can he identify with that? Can he identify with somebody who says nothing good comes out of Libby? I don't know that anybody actually says that. Most of you who have moved from outside go, this is the, like paradise. Those of you who have grown up here may not see it as paradise. You may see it as more of prison, that it's a beautiful prison, but it's prison. You might, like, you might grow up and go, I just wish I could go anywhere other than Libby. I wish I could do anything other than be here. I wish that I could do anything but be this person's child. I wish I could do anything but be related to these people. 
When Jesus is tempted in every way like you are and I are, he endured and went through every pattern of human life with every temptation that you and I have experienced, but without sin. What about the temptation to disobey or to rebel against those in authority? I mean, think about that graphic and the kings that are reigning over Israel and the Romans on top of that. And the thing in us that rails against wrong leadership and the desire to see that righted in whatever way is possible. Can Jesus relate to that? Can he relate to people who are oppressed or, or are under the thumb of a government they don't want to be under? His family ran away from a king and then skirted another king. Can you, like, I can't imagine that Mary and Joseph around the table had great things to say about the Herods. Or I can't imagine that people, as they went to the temple every year, as Luke relates, that's the only other thing we see in Jesus' childhood, every year going to, 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 to the temple and they forget Jesus when he's 12. Right? And you find him in the temple. Can't imagine along the road everybody has glowing things to say about the Romans and the Herods. There's a whole class of people called the Zealots who are trying to overthrow all of that authority the whole time Jesus is alive. And he actually calls one of them to be his followers. Anything about, was Jesus ever tempted to just give up the whole religion thing because there were people who were making something of it that it ought not to be? Pharisees and Sadducees ruled the day, and many of them had their power because of their political connections, not because of their godliness. And yet his family, year after year, went and did the things that God had called them to do. And I can't imagine when Jesus goes into the temple as a 30-year-old, when he drives out the people selling in the courtyards, I can't imagine that they just started doing that in the window that he was an adult. They were probably doing it his entire childhood. At 12, when he tells his parents, this is where I'm supposed to be in my father's house. Can you imagine what's going on around that? And, the, and there's the temptation. It's like, these people are hypocrites. I don't want anything to do with this. And to throw it all off. Now, can he really empathize with me in all of the ways? Or do I just limit it to, like, he, 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 he resonates with other people and the things that they struggle with, but he couldn't possibly understand me. Or we would go, God is, if he is God of the universe, he couldn't possibly understand what I'm going through. And yet, it's the whole reason why he came in the flesh became nothing in order that he might identify with us, but then die for us in all of our failings. He is in every way a Jesus, a God who can understand what you're going through. He is a God who in every way understands every human emotion that you have experienced and it's bent towards sin and instead turned it towards praise to his Father. But he can relate nonetheless. You might think your problems, I might think my problems, all of a sudden have hit the, the outskirts of where like, it's gone beyond God's ability to understand it. And the incredible thing is, is that Jesus can relate in every way. He, he doesn't run out of ways to understand, to sympathize, and yet, not just to go, there, there, pat on the back, I wish it wasn't that way. His empathy goes to, runs to the cross and seeks to make it new. And the last little thing I thought about this with, with, with him being born in, or raised in Nazareth, one other spot in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 31. Paul writing to a different church. 
calling them away from some of their divisions that are dividing them over uh, following this person over this person. And he, and he reminds them where they have come from. And he asks them the question, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Let me just take a moment and do like a collective ouch. <sighs> Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The incredible little call back here where Paul says, kind of remember who you were. Now that you're in Christ, remember who you were. He says, not many of you brought anything to the table. In fact, spiritually, none of us brought anything to the table except for the sin that made it necessary for Jesus to save us. But when he says not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, think again, go just run back to this and think about how Jesus was revealed in his humanity. Not by noble birth, not by worldly standards. Later on, people remark over his wisdom because he teaches as one with authority even though he had no training and he came from a backwater place. But there's a part of us that wants to make more of us than what we are. We want to validate why we are who we are. We want to validate why we have a seat at the table. Is what outside of these walls what everything is about, isn't it? Who are you? Where'd you come from? Who do you know? And instead, through the Spirit, Paul says, God doesn't do it that way. He takes the opposite approach. He takes the things that are nothing and makes them something by His grace. He takes those who are far off and He brings them near through the blood of His Son. He takes the things that, that cause stumbling blocks or obstacles. He brings a Savior out of Nazareth, a place where nobody could see anything good coming out of. And He makes Him the power of God among the Jewish people. He takes a guy who did not come from noble birth, who didn't have great upbringing, who just was raised in, in Galilee outside of all of the happenings of everything in Israel, and he makes him the wisdom 
to those who think they're wise. And he brings all of these, those things low because in him the fullness of God dwells. Through him, he goes to the cross with joy, bearing our sin and our shame. But the Old Testament says that he was simple, and there was nothing about him that we should esteem him, looking forward. Physically, they're like, they, like, it wasn't like he, he wasn't Fabio that walked in and went, whoa, something special about this guy. He wasn't wearing designer clothes, or he walked in and snapped his attention. Oh, this, this person is something. I should listen to him. He had, the, he had the family line of David, but by the time that he has grown up, people simply say, can anything good come from where he's from? And what's kind of ironic about that is the only good that has come to humanity has come out of Nazareth. Because he didn't just take on flesh to show us God's really good at taking on flesh and he can identify with us. But Jesus took on flesh with an eye towards the whole purpose being going to the cross and dying for you and for me. Because in all the ways that he empathizes with us, that he understands our weaknesses, in all the ways that we fail that he didn't, he takes his perfection and exchanges it for our mess. Scandal. Can you imagine this? Like, yeah, I don't know what you think the perfect family is, but you just imagine all the ways that you think your family is screwed up. And you imagine that the perfect family comes in and swaps places with you and says, we'll take your situation, you take ours. First of all, most of you be like, we're not even asking them, are they sure? We're just, we're gone. <laughs> Suckers. They don't even know, right? But think about this. To take all of his perfection, all of his holiness, all of his righteousness, and to give it to messed up people because he loves them and because they have received it by faith. That's, that's an incredible exchange. What, what, what do you give in exchange for that? There's nothing you can give. But what you, the only thing you can do is receive it. That I believe that he has done for me what I can't do for myself. In all the ways that I have failed, in all the ways that I have contributed to my mess, not all the mess is just done to me. Some of it is my own doing. In all of that, he still, in the midst of that, he doesn't say, wash up and come back later and we'll see if you're doing better. He says, bring it to me, and I'll exchange it. Your mess, my righteousness. And he does it through his death, burial, and resurrection. So the simplest question I could ask you this morning is, hey, do you know, by faith, are you following Jesus? Have you trusted him? Are you walking with him? Faith implies not just a belief in an intellectual, like, yeah, that, that makes sense about Jesus. It implies a lifetime of following him, going where he goes, saying what he says to say, doing what he says to do. Have you done that? And the second part is, like, who, who can you share this incredible news of this humble Savior came, empty, like he, he, the eternal Son of God took on flesh and dwelled among us, took on our sin and our shame that we might have life. That's the best news, and we ought to be giving it away. Are you? As we gather around the mess of family, hey, here's the news flash to you. I want to encourage you really quick. 
And this is going to seem like an offhanded thing. That was kind of mean. Every single family represented in this room is messy. You might be coming into today and tomorrow thinking everybody else's family has it figured out and yours is the only one that's messy. Somehow, by God's grace, he has allowed the, the venue of marriage and family and children and siblings and all of that to play out right smack dab in the middle of a sinful, broken world. And there is nobody that escapes from that unscathed. Our messes look different, but every single one of them is messy. And the incredible thing about this is that, that he doesn't just go, wow, your family's too messy. So I came for that. I came for that mess. It doesn't mean that it's going to be righted overnight, but you have a God who understands. Even this, he understands. So you can take a step forward with bated breath maybe, but with hope that, you're, that God's not done with your family. There is still hope for that gathering tomorrow and however it might go. That the possibility of him turning and redeeming what seems to be irreparably broken is not irreparably broken. That because of him, there is hope.